Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. It's great to welcome you to the LSE. My name is Mike Savage. I am Professor of Sociology here at the LSE. I'm also convene research theme in the International Inequality Institute on the issue of wealth, elites and tax justice. And it's this theme of research which is hosting tonight's event. Let me just say, before I introduce the panel, let me just say a few words about why we are hosting this important panel, why we want to support this area of research. The underlying issue is that wealth inequality is huge, massive discrepancies between super rich, wealthy, elite people and people who are struggling to get by, dealing with debt and insecurity chronically on a daily basis. Lots and lots of research on this. Uh, what we try to do in the LSC is not just explore those issues, but also the issue about how the knock-on implications or, or the kind of aspects which are not always so visible, which go beyond the mere facts of wealth inequality. So we're doing work, for instance, around social mobility and wealth, the super wealthy elite, but today's focus is really around the issue of the racialization of wealth. So the point which we really want you to understand and take away from today's event is the fact that wealth inequality is massively mapped on to racialized divides, in which, you know, to, to be very crude, you know, white people are predominantly the wealthy wealth holders, and black people and non-white people in different ways are much less wealthy. Now, we're going to be exploring this it's the comparison of UK and South Africa, which, you know, let me just explain why we're doing that. Partly reflects the fact that um, I've been involved in research with South African colleagues. But of course, you know, because we're at the International Inequality Institute, we want to reflect the fact that issues like racial inequality and wealth inequality, do, they're not confined to national borders. They link different parts of the world. And of course, issues of empire and the imperial heritage, you know, the significance of the British Empire, as a structure, which is also about exploiting and extracting wealth from global nations and taking it to the global north. Those issues really still exist today, and they're still bound up with the question of wealth inequality. So a comparison between issues in South Africa and the UK is, I think, really telling. And there'll be some parallels and some similarities as well as some differences. What we want to do in this panel is bring together academic research, but also activist and campaigning voices. So we see this as an issue which is about developing our research awareness, but also thinking about how we develop strategies and campaigning issues which will hopefully address the inequalities which we want to un uncover. So uh, that's the idea. Let me introduce the panel who will be exploring these issues in this panel. We're going to begin with Shabna Begum, who is the Interim Chief Executive Officer of the Runnymede Trust. Many of you will know the Running Me Trust is Britain's uh, leading race equality think tank. has been around a long time and has, really, has a vital role to play in the UK in terms of foregrounding questions of racial inequality in all sorts of different areas, ranging from you know, policing, criminal justice issues, issues migration, but also economic issues and the, the economic inequalities bound up with, with racism. So Shabna will go first, and then we're going to pass on to Ellie Carrigan-Arkey. She is an Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at the LSE, the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion. She's done some really important research uh, mapping the racial wealth divide in the UK in, in great detail, much more detail than we currently been able to do. She's got some really important findings which she will 
briefly present. So that'll be the kind of two UK speakers, and then we're going to move to South Africa. Um, we're going to pass on to Vimal Ranchod, who's Professor in the School of Economics at the University of Cape Town, and Deputy Director of the Southern Africa Labour and Development Research Unit, Saldrew. Saldrew is a partner of the work we've been doing at the NSC. Uh, Saldrew, I always like to think, it's been around a long time, maybe 50 years and predominantly economists, but these are economists concerned with issues of social justice as well as purely economic issues. It's great to welcome them. We'll talk about the South African context. Then we've done a finish with Pfizer Mayer, who's an activist from Mitchell's Plain Cape Town and a founding member of the African Water Commons Collective. So she'll be presenting a perspective around how it feels to be a South African, a non-white South African, experiencing the underbelly and the inequalities on the ground. So kind of, that kind of first-hand experience. Each speaker will speak for between 10 and 15 minutes, and then that will leave around half an hour for questions and discussion. Okay, so let's move on to the shutter. Thank you so much, Mike, for that introduction, and also for inviting me to be part of this panel, because I think you brought together an amazing group of speakers and perspectives, and I think it will be really interesting to see how the discussion progresses after we've presented. So Mike did say I'm currently interim at the Runnymede Trust, but my substantive role is as Director of Research there. And so, as Mike indicated, the Runnymede Trust as a think tank oversees issues from policing and criminal justice to education. We published a report last week around serious violence reduction orders and stop and search powers and their disproportionate impact on black young men in particular. So we do a lot of work and I'm always really conscious when I come to these panels that I'm not an expert but in any of these one issues where the esteemed panel here most definitely is. So um, I want to kind of put that as a caveat for the, the presentation and also start this so I know how long I'm speaking for. But I guess where I wanted to kind of take us is to think about the UK context and for us to think a little bit about not just the wealth inequalities as this kind of static kind of profile, but really to, to talk about it from the Runnymede perspective in terms of the policies, the activity of the government for the last decade and a bit where we have seen actually widening inequalities. So the kind of regressive policies that have been enacted and which have both created and protected the kind of inequality that we're looking at. I will talk through some of the impacts of that in terms of communities of colour and how that has inflicted harm again. When we're talking about serious violence reduction orders, that's not a world away actually from the wealth inequalities that we discuss. It's important to kind of think about what kind of impacts deprivation and economic deprivation has on communities, the breakdown of communities. And finally, I will try and think about what needs to change, how we kind of begin to disrupt the, the existing conversation where there's this almost fatalistic kind of view that this is the way it is and there's very little that can be done and this idea that we kind of tinker around the edges and put plasters on things. So we'll kind of share something of that as well in terms of how I go through things. And I guess the first thing to start off with is to kind of think about the fact that Runnymede, we do often focus on the here and now. We very much are focused on labour markets, inequalities, and income inequalities in particular. And so today was um, Equal Pay Day. It's a gender-based day where we look at when we record the point at which most women in the UK stop getting paid until the end of the year compared to their white counterparts, well, white male counterparts. What we tried to show was actually that 
that day, when you look at women of colour, comes much, much earlier. So 22nd November is the one for all women, but actually for some groups there, you can see going right the way back to September, I'm from Bangladeshi background, you know, most women from that profile are, are there in October. So we try to kind of look at the intersectionality of those experiences and to be able to kind of highlight that the way in which people experience inequalities is often compounded by the various parts of identities. So we do do um, a lot of work around um, income and income inequality in the here and now. We did, and this is one of our kind of major reports that we published a few years ago now, which is called The Colour of Money. And in that, we began to look more closely at the, the wealth inequality. So what sits behind the income inequalities? So we did this um, report called The Colour of Money, which looked at the fact that you have these very distinct kind of um, wealth profiles. So for every pound that a white household has, Indian households have 90 to 95p, Pakistani households have around 50p, Black Caribbean households have around 20p, and Black African and Bangladeshi households have approximately 10p. So that's in terms of savings. So this is where we're beginning to think about the wealth assets that people own. And this was before COVID. This was before the pandemic hit, where we know that actually Black minority ethnic groups had a much worse impact, yes, in terms of health, but also in terms of their financial profile as well. So we are aware that the income inequality work that we do, which is in the here and now, looking at the labour market, has to fall back on and think about the broader wealth inequality, the savings, the assets that are often relied on by people during times of hardship, but actually are far weaker for, for our communities. And we would argue that that profile isn't accidental. It is designed by a system. It is not a broken system. The system is designed to, to generate that inequality. So what we've seen in the past 13 years at least is the sabotaging of our social security system. Um, we've seen regressive tax benefit measures. So when we're talking about wealth, we're talking about the people at the very bottom having um, their wealth and their savings and their assets stripped away from them. So we have seen um, those tax benefit measures which have taken away money from the poorest households um, and that has disproportionately impacted black and minority ethnic households so things like the two child limit things like the benefit cap disproportionately impact families which have bangladeshi families for instance who might have more children and so on average, white families now receive £454 less in terms of their social security benefits um, than they did a decade ago. But if we look at black families, that's £1,635 less. So that's a significant difference in terms of the amount of money that's been taken away from people in those lower income profiles. And we often talk about the state as being kind of this, or, or think about, or the state likes to play the character of a benevolent, generous state, kind of, you know, supporting people who are often undeserving. And actually, that narrative is really, really wrong, and we would contest that. We've also seen a neglect in terms of social housing. We know that 4.2 million people are waiting to be placed in social housing but less than 7,000 social homes were, were built last year. And we know again that the, the people who are most likely to rely on social housing are again going to come from black and minority ethnic communities. So where they're not accessing social housing, 
where they are. There are definite inequalities even within that. We've seen cases of people and black minority ethnic tenants in social housing being treated awfully. For example, Arab Ishak, the two-year-old boy who died because of the overexposure to, to mould in his house. But even when people are not being able to access social housing in private housing, we know that often that they have higher rents compared to the income that they have. And then that leads to income inequality. Again, persistent um, problems in the labour market. These haven't been kind of um, addressed by any of the policies that the government has introduced. So we continue to have overrepresentation of black and minority ethnic communities in low paid and insecure work. And we know that all of these things have widened inequality for, for black and minority ethnic groups in particular. And we saw how that has had racialized impacts. We know that during COVID, we had disproportionate numbers of deaths in the first instance amongst households who were poorer, who had le less opportunity to socially distance, who were exposed to the virus because of the nature of the work that they did. So we know that during COVID, we had a racialized impact in terms of health. We've seen the cost of living crisis, and again, there's often this narrative that the cost of living crisis, we're all, kind of, we're all in this together. Actually, you know, some people are worse hit than others. And our report, Falling Faster, made very clear that the rates of poverty, rates of deprivation are much more um, significant for black and minority ethnic households. If we point to food insecurity, we know that black households are up to four times more likely to suffer from food insecurity. And that's the term that we think tanks like to use. Food insecurity is hunger, right? We're talking about people going hungry in this city, certainly, and in the UK. So we can talk about the levels of poverty and the wealth inequality, the widening of the gap and what's happening to people in those lower incomes. And I would argue that at the same time, we have seen um, lots of protection of people who are um, at the top. So we expected, and uh, this didn't happen, so these slides were sent in earlier, and my colleague over there smiling because we had a whole discussion about how am I going to get rid of that slide? But um, the budget that was announced today doesn't address any of the major problems with the social security system. We know that the cuts to incapacity benefit that were announced today, the end of cost of living payments that were announced, and the freeze to working age benefits do nothing to, to help support the people at the bottom. So whilst that's happening, we know that the people at the top generally have been protected from some of the harsher impacts of that. And where, for example, even when we talk about the cost of living crisis and we talk about inflation. Inflation didn't hit people at the same rate. When we did the shopping basket test, for example, and we looked at what it was that the average person or people on lower income were, were buying and putting in their shopping basket, that had gone up by 70-80% compared to the kind of 10-11% that was being reported on the news. So when we talk about inflation and who is benefiting, and by the way, they did the same test, I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but they were talking about how much, for example, the luxury products within m and they're kind of meal, you know, meal for two for £10 or whatever it is, however much it costs. Those things are protected, whereas the kind of the, the staples, the things that people rely on, were allowed to, to rock it up. And that is a really simple illustration of where the protection is going. And 
In terms of what needs to change, I think that we're really clear that we need to think about not just the income inequality in the here and now. We do a lot of work around living wage, around um, ethnicity pay gap reporting, and all of those things are important. But we really, really need to disrupt the wealth structure as it exists. We need to make fashionable, again, the, the conversation around progressive taxation. We can't be talking about tax burdens, we need to be talking about tax responsibilities, and we need to have uh, a taxation system that really recognises the profile, as Mike described it, that actually, essentially, if we're really crude about it, we've got white people at the top and black minority ethnic people at the bottom. The redistribution of that wealth needs to happen not just through fixing income, but through thinking about how we redistribute the income, the, the wealth that's enjoyed at the top, and how that goes and feeds into people who are located at the bottom. And we think that we need to have an investment in public services. We think that the, there is a real strong case for the fact that the way in which the government has stripped away our public services, has stripped away kind of savings and funding into our education system, into our healthcare system, into our social security system, all of that needs to not only be reversed, it needs to actually um, change direction altogether. We would argue that in terms of thinking about wealth inequalities in the UK, there is a lot of work to do. The budget today doesn't even give any hint that we're at a level of understanding of what the, the inequality is and what needs to change. So, lots to do. Thanks, thanks Shabla. So now we're going to move on to Eleni. Hello everybody, and now I'm going to present some evidence on ethnic wealth inequality in the UK. The evidence that I will present is from Understanding Society. But before that, I would like to thank the International Inequality Institute and Sticker that funded part of this work, and also the International Inequality Institute and, uh, for uh, organizing this event. I said I'm going to present evidence on ethnic, racial and ethnic wealth inequality uh, based on data from Understanding Society. Understanding Society, for people that uh, do not know, is the largest uh, longitudinal survey in the UK. And uh, although it's not a specialized survey on uh, wealth, it does uh, include uh, wealth measures and uh, its main uh, advantage is that uh, it includes an ethnic booster sample, so it allows us to look at uh, differences in uh, wealth between and within ethnic groups at different parts of the distribution. So it allows a more holistic approach in the issue of ethnic wealth inequality. I said that uh, compared for example, to the Wealth Advisor Survey, the Understanding Society has a narrower wealth measure. So the measure of Understanding Society is uh, actually the sum of net financial wealth and net housing wealth that households have. So it doesn't include, for example, uh, pension wealth, which is included in the uh, Wealth Advisor Survey, and uh, does not include uh, business wealth. In this uh, slide, I depict uh, the wealth levels of uh, different ethnic groups and different parts of uh, the wealth distribution. Uh, the first thing that uh, is very obvious is that there are significant wealth inequalities across ethnic groups, uh, both between ethnic groups, but also within ethnic groups. So, 
if we take, for example, the 50th percentile, we see that the median white individual from the white British ethnic group had wealth of around 140,000 pounds, while the Indian and the Indian individual, individual from the Indian ethnic group has around even more, around 160,000 pounds, while the Bangladeshi, Black Caribbean, Black Africans have wealth levels that do not even appear. I mean, they're very small, so they don't are negligible, so they don't evident in this uh, scale. So, moving uh, higher up the distribution, we see that uh, wealth increases for all ethnic groups, but even at the highest wealth levels. Uh, and excluding the Indian ethnic group, all other ethnic groups have substantially less wealth than uh, uh, the white British and the Indian ethnic groups. Uh, so this means that even the richer within each minority group are substantially poorer than the white British. Moving at the other end of the distribution, at the low wealth percentiles, and uh, although the scale of the graph doesn't allow us to look uh, closely, doesn't show the, the differences, the differences are there and they are substantial. So we see that uh, at the 10th percentile, the black African, Bangladeshi, and Bangladeshi uh, and other Asian ethnic groups have net worth, uh, are in net uh, depth of around uh, 20 to 30,000 pounds, while the white individuals, the white British uh, individuals, have uh, again a debt, uh, but just at the level of uh, 1,400 pounds. So, massive difference, more than 10 times more. Another thing that I have to uh, say is that uh, the level of negative net worth, of net debt, is the proportion of uh, uh, individuals from different ethnic groups that are in net debt are uh, stretching at higher levels of the wealth distribution. So we see that around 20% of uh, the white British uh, population are in net debt in comparison to around 40% of the Bangladeshi and uh, Black African ethnic groups. One reason that has been put forward of why ethnic minority groups have so much less wealth compared to the white British population is that they have lower ownership rates of investments and home ownership, which both have, especially home ownership, have very large returns over the last few years. And so they have not benefited from this, uh, for example, uh, housing uh, boom. Looking at the other end uh, of the spectrum, on the, the debt side, we see that uh, ethnic minority people are not less likely to own their homes, but also more likely to own their homes with uh, mortgage, which is uh, of particular concern now with uh, the rising interest rates. So there is a much higher proportion of ethnic minority groups, homeowners who uh, do not own their homes uh, outright. So they are uh, vulnerable to the rising uh, 
interest rates. Also, I think minority groups are more likely to hold financial debt and also more likely to hold debt that has higher cost, like credit card debt and overdrafts. So, so the different uh, how net finance the two components main components of wealth of the wealth that we have here how the different components contribute to the wealth gap of each ethnic group relative to the white British majority at different parts of the distribution. It shows that uh, net financial wealth is the main contributing factor of uh, the gap at the low at low wealth levels, uh, up to the third uh, percentile around for most ethnic groups, and at the top, while at the middle of the distribution, uh, the main uh, factor driving uh, the wealth gaps are uh, net housing wealth. This slide shows how net worth inequality changes uh, for different ethnic groups between 2012-14 and 2016-19 at different percentile points again. What we can see is that uh, actually wealth, with some exceptions, uh, wealth uh, increased at uh, uh, most percentiles of the distribution for the white British and especially the Indian ethnic groups. It also increased uh, for the Caribbean and the other Asian ethnic groups uh, across the distribution, but uh, the increase that uh, these groups uh, experienced in wealth were much less than the increase of uh, the white British group at the lower part of the distribution. So there was an increase, a widening in the gap at this, at the low wealth levels, while there is some evidence of some catching up at the upper part of the distribution. The Black African, Bangladeshi, and Pakistani ethnic groups, unfortunately, are, have been left behind. They, they all saw either decreases or uh, in their wealth levels, especially at the lower part of the distribution, or very smaller increases in their wealth relative to the white British uh, ethnic group and the Indian ethnic group. So, as Abna said, probably ethnic wealth inequality, I mean, I couldn't look at how inequality, ethnic wealth inequality have changed uh, since 2019, but we can speculate actually that uh, first of all it uh, probably increased during the pandemic because of the fact that uh, the house price uh, continue to increase during the pandemic, also contributing to the higher wealth levels at the mid of the distribution for the homeowners, which are disproportionately ethnic minority groups are underrepresented in this group. Uh, but uh, also because in, there is evidence that uh, mid-wealth uh, uh, households have uh, increased savings during the period, this period, while on the other hand, uh, uh, households uh, at the lower end of the income distribution have uh, accumulation of debt. So, probably that uh, the story was that uh, there has been an increase in uh, ethnic wealth gaps again. Since then, we don't know. 
but the falling asset prices probably will have some negative effect on the wealth holdings of uh, wealthier households. But on the other hand, the rising interest rates would uh, put finance, uh, pressures on the uh, finances of uh, uh, indebted households and uh, young homeowners or uh, people that uh, are uh, early on in their uh, homeownership. This most likely would also have uh, substantial negative effects on uh, ethnic wealth. So, we know that uh, wealth is a substantial determinant of people, uh, people's living standards and a major driver of uh, inequality. So understanding ethnic wealth inequality and actively try to fix it is important not only for improving the living standards of uh, disadvantaged ethnic groups, but on the quality of opportunity grounds as well. But uh, to reduce or eliminate uh, even better ethnic wealth inequality is a complex issue and requires a, a range of actions, including addressing the ethnic inequalities in the labor market and uh, uh, adopting policies that uh, boost uh, the homeownership, savings and pension wealth uh, of uh, disadvantaged groups, as well as addressing barriers to social housing access as well as discrimination in the rental and the modern matter that uh, ethnic minority groups face. Also, in the context of the rising uh, interest rates, insulated somehow vulnerable uh, ethnic minority groups is uh, also from, especially from the rising uh, mortgage uh, payments, uh, is also particularly important. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Thank you. Yes, that is, I think, the most detailed account we've had uh, so far on the kind of the breakdown of the racial wealth divide in the UK is really important. And I think that you underscore Shabner's arguments about the kind of the way in which the cost of living crisis is actually intensifying. The racial wealth divide is really telling. So now we're going to go to South Africa, and Bimbo is going to introduce some details of the South African case. So I'm going to talk about the South African case, and this is an iconic picture from the apartheid era where we had a completely stratified and segregated society, right? So think of any type of public infrastructure, housing, healthcare, transport, recreational facilities, everything. These are all segregated and stratified, but not just separate. It was separate and extremely unequal, right? By design, so it's national policy for a very long time to create a tiered, and stratified society by race. Okay, I'm Vimal, as Mike introduced me, I'm from the University of Cape Town. And I'm going to talk a little bit about definitions because even the title forced me to think quite hard what, it, what am I talking about here. And then we're going to talk about the social <coughs> context and some of the empirical evidence for from today's South African society. And then I'll try to 
emphasize why the racial wealth divide that is. So it turns out what is a race is not such a straightforward question. And I've been working on a research paper with a colleague of mine where we were really diving deep into how the South African government created race, right? Because it's not scientifically anything, and yet it's super important politically and socially, especially in South Africa at that time and still today. But ultimately, it's something which we all agree are valid groups, right? And these groups matter from a perception perspective and from an identity perspective. In the South African case, it also mattered from a legal perspective, right? And there were four groups. So there's white, who you should think of as European, even though the law didn't define it as such. There were Africans, whose ancestry came from Africa. And then there's this third group called colored, which are neither African nor European. So in the law, which I'll talk about the laws in a moment, but the one which creates race as an official category, the 1950 Population Registration Act, there's only these three groups, right? There's white, African, and colored. And then another law in the late 1950s creates a fourth group called Indian. And that just that, that mere fact that by law you can create more groups or collapse groups says something about the absurdity of what was being done. And yet it's absurd, but it had such profound dynamic implications, right? Or at least when I talk about wealth, we, I'm going to talk about what the discipline of economics mostly defines as wealth. And it's quite a narrow definition. So household net wealth includes all of the financial, non-financial assets, so real estate, land, buildings, etc., and financial assets, equities, bonds, bank deposits, etc., over which households can enforce ownership rights and that can provide economic benefits to their owners net of any debts. So it's got a lot of component parts to this definition, but crucially, it's financial and non-financial assets over which you can get economic benefits over time, and you have to have ownership rights. Now that's kind of key because some of the things that we would recognize as valuable, you can't assert ownership rights. And crucially, in many developing countries, including South Africa, there's substantial amounts of land which is still communally owned. So it's owned by the community or owned by the trust. And you can't sell that land. You can use it, but you can't sell it. And so it has economic value, but it's not part of your wealth, right? That's also true to a lesser extent in places where property rights are not well established. So in informal settlements, again, there are informal markets of trading your property ownership even when you don't have title deeds, but it's far more tenuous. It also excludes things which are probably quite important like human capital, social capital, cultural capital, all of which we think would help you to kind of escape from poverty or acquire more conventional wealth or enhance your welfare. But this definition of wealth excludes all of that. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of South Africa because not everyone knows it. And I find it into with my students who are now in the early 20s that they, their understanding is getting weaker and weaker as the years go by. Uh, so we had a lot of racial structuring of the society and a lot of discrimination. Um, some of the key things were the Mines and Works Act from 1911, which 
was just legally mandating racial discrimination, right? So there's certain mines are super important in South Africa for our development from an agrarian society into where we are now. Um, and it was coincident with a lot of potential mobility, socioeconomic mobility, but then there was this restriction on who could occupy which types of occupations. The Black Land Act of 1913, that one is an incredibly important one because it just asserted that blacks were not allowed to own land outside of designated reserves and the share of the land was about 7%, right, of the total land area of South Africa. So that law has an amendment which raises that 7 to 13% but it's still a tiny, it's an extremely disproportionate because you're talking about 30% for a population demographic that represents about 80% of the population, right? And in addition, it's not even there, but it's not the best land. That 13% is typically the less desirable land from an agrarian perspective or from a trade perspective, and definitely from a mining perspective. There were many more, I'm just giving a few examples here. So then 1948 happens, and what happens is the old government, which are the United Party government, loses an election. They actually get a majority of votes, but because of the way parliamentary seats are allocated to regions, they lose control of parliament through the National Party, right? Who had maybe 10 points fewer, I mean, the, the margin was almost 10 percentage points less than the National Party, but the National Party controls parliament and they implement this policy called apartheid as a national policy. Literally, it's an Afrikaans word which translates as separateness, but um, it's not separate and equal is the point. So they enacted several laws. There's over 100 laws which are considered apartheid laws, but I'm just listing some of the very key ones here. So the Group Areas Act segregated neighborhoods in our cities, right? So there's you can see it on a map even now, which areas were designated white areas, which areas were designated colored areas, Indian areas, African areas. And, and once that happened, you could quite easily put more infrastructure and more development into white areas and also control African areas. So part of the thing was to contain and control in the, in the, in the event of an uprising. The Population Registration Act, as I said, this was the key foundation stone because it required everyone every citizen had to get classified and on your national ID card or we have an ID card with your face and your name and a number and it would state race and so everyone had to carry this thing. Uh, the Bantu Authorities Act established homelands which were chiefdoms and that's where the communal land mostly resided. It was part of a process by the government to try to dispossess black South Africans of citizenship, right? The Bantu Education Act, that's another far-reaching one which we're still trying to undo or address because it kind of undermined the existing education that was available for black South Africans and then replaced it with state-controlled, a completely different education system which was under the control of the apartheid government which was intentionally offering fit-for-purpose education, right? So you've got a state which is trying to encourage black people to do menial tasks and occupy positions in an occupational hierarchy which were undesirable 
and create oversupply for that, which would depress wages. And what you do is you don't give the education for upward mobility for professional classes. You give an education which would be strict for purpose. Yeah. And in fact, for black South Africans, education only became compulsory in the mid-1990s, so after the new government came into power. We had a democratic election in 1994. And the Separate Amenities Act, that which I started with, that's one manifestation of the Separate Amenities Act. So it applied to recreation facilities, but it also applied to transport networks. So who can use public transport or which public transport you're allowed to use. And just as important, or perhaps more important, I don't know, but hospitals. Hospitals and clinics were segregated. And again, not just segregated, but you had really good hospitals for white people and decreased in quality of public health care for people of color. Okay, so here's just a map of the 1980s South Africa. And the shaded regions are places where which are designated homelands. And you can see what a small share of the aggregate land it represented. It's also, you can, and we have done this, but it's not in today's presentation, you can look at a poverty map of South Africa today and look at like just, you know, great red to green or blue, where red is the highest levels of poverty and blue is the relatively affluent parts of the country. And it will look just like this map. That's, it's, it's so striking that this thing which has done 50, 70 years ago just coincides with the distribution of poverty right now. Um, we're the three poorest country, uh, country, regions of the country. Uh, this yellow shaded group, and that's what used to be the Saskai. The blue shaded group, or turquoise rather, next to it, which is what this was, Transkai. And then the northern parts of KwaZulu-Natal as well really, really high poverty rates. And then some of the others as well. Okay, so now I'm going to try not to overwhelm you with numbers and data. So this is a labor market analysis. I work a lot on labor markets and statistics. And one of the things that I want to show you is just the difference in employment rates by race and unemployment rates by race, right? So let's start by looking down the column of employed black Africans. And it goes 38, 38.6, 39, 39, 40, 40, 40, right? So it's going up, but very slowly. Whereas if we look at whites, it's 64% are employed, 63, 63, 62, 63, 63. And these are all adults, right? So it's, I'm excluding young people and I'm excluding the elderly. They're not part of the sample here. Look at the unemployment rates, though. For black Africans, unemployment rate of 28.6, 28, 27, 28, 30, 31. In fact, it's gotten substantially worse since um, COVID happened. In, if you look at the white unemployment rate, 5.8, 5.8, 6.8, 7.47. And so the unemployment rate is four times as high amongst black Africans as compared to whites. And what you'll find is in many different measures of socioeconomic development, whether it's employment or earnings or access to water or access to electricity or malnourishment, you'll find really almost unbelievable margins between these two and where colored and Indian Asian fall in between, which was the hierarchy created by the old government. 
right? So phenomenal levels of persistence. Um, this is a plot of earnings. So in addition to the difference in the unemployment rates and employment rates, this is earnings, so this is the amount that people get if they are employed, conditional unemployment, yeah? It's on a log scale, so we can't easily translate it into rands, but the magnitudes are pretty substantial because a one-point difference is a really big amount. Uh, right. So, so what you'll see is that the black African distribution lies furthest to the left, and then slightly to the right is the color distribution, and then substantially, like the Indian one is an interesting one because it has a bimodal distribution, and then far to the right, actually, is the orange one, which is the white um, earnings distribution. And that's kind of the thing about South Africa today, that if you look at, so this is data from our census 2001-2011. So, like I said, you're gonna find this gradient by race, as usual, but look at the difference in magnitudes. So in 2001, Average annual household income amongst African-headed households was 22,000 rand, and amongst white households, it was 193,000 rand. So it's about nine times higher in white households, right? If you look at 10 years later, so 2011, the African one has gone up quite substantially. It's gone up almost three times. The white one has gone up almost two times. So, so, they're, they're growing faster, but at a small pace, yeah? And the, the gap is just massive, whereas in, if, it depends on whether you're thinking of relative inequality or absolute inequality. In relative terms, there is convergence, it's very slow. In absolute terms, actually the gap was, what, about 170,000 in 2001, and now it's 300,000 in 2011. Um, this is the last data because we've just now finished our, we've just released data from the 2021 census, or 2022 census. So I haven't been able to update that yet, but it would be fascinating to do so when we get a chance. Okay, so quickly, I'm not gonna get into all the technical stuff, but I, I published a paper with my friend and colleague, Miguel Alitha, and what we did was we, looked, we were trying to estimate what's the effect of race. What? Because there was a time when people could change their race. Right? And there was a time when the way in which your classification was done was based off different underlying information. And so there's a very peculiar moment when the same person, if they were classified in the one era, would have been classified one way, and if they were classified in the subsequent era, would be classified differently. Which gives us a moment for identification. And the point is that our best estimates are that being white instead of colored for males led to a fourfold increase in income. Right, so the same underlying, the same person conceptually, depending on how they were classified, would have had a fourfold increase in income. And that's manifest through several things, including education and opportunities and where you could live and where you couldn't live and things like that. But huge, huge, huge um, differentials actually. So when it comes specifically to wealth inequality, we don't have much, um, it's quite hard to talk about racial wealth inequality. Probably the best paper is by Chaitor-Gerald, which was published um, last year. And they find that we have extreme levels of wealth inequality compared to any other, any other estimates. Um, the top 10% own 86% of aggregate wealth, 
in the top 0.1%, close to one third of all wealth. Um, it's just like, even in highly unequal societies, you just don't get numbers like this. They, they, this is also from their paper. There has been no sign of decreasing wealth inequality since the end of apartheid. But when it comes to racial wealth inequality, we actually don't have good empirical measures. And that's because we don't have lots of data to measure wealth. Um, our household surveys, which have race, don't do such a great job, especially of measuring the very wealthy, right? Because it's hard to find them and they don't usually participate. On the other hand, the way that many people have done is have done this is by using tax data and inferring using returns on assets and inferring the stocks of wealth underlying them. But that data doesn't have race in it. So you can use it, but you can't you can't then get into a subgrouping by race. And so we actually don't have a good measure, but on balance, given the history, given all of the contemporary socioeconomic development measures, given that wealth and assets are far slower to adapt than income, I think, at least I would believe convincingly, that it's hard to imagine we don't have extreme levels of wealth inequality. So my last slide, Mike, is, okay, yeah. so why does racial wealth inequality matter? And I think there's, there's two different groupings. The one is just intrinsically. That if you come, if you have a society with, with just this unbelievably unjust history, which creates these extreme racial hierarchies, it's very, very hard to see from an, any type of justice perspective why this is acceptable, right? Whether you're thinking of distributive justice or restorative justice or opportunity, it's, it's just really hard to see how this doesn't matter. Let's put it that way. Um, but also instrumentally, there's lots of reasons that people should care, I think. The first is the potential for really, really big political instability. That it's, it's hard to see how a society can carry on with this type of uh, inequality. It also reduces our social cohesion. It limits the ability to connect with people, to see people as like me. Certainly wealth is a form of security and different groups have different abilities to navigate shops, so if I don't have any wealth and I've got a pandemic and I'm told I have to stay at home and I can't go to work, very quickly the, the kind of, yeah, the society starts to unravel basically. Um, and then there's these efficiency implications which economists care about deeply, um, because wealth also gives you the chance to invest, right? To try to start a business or to get your kids to go to schools or to get them the doctor when they need to. And all of that is just part of having a strong society and a strong country. So I think it's a big deal, but I'll stop there. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much for giving that wonderful overview about um, racial inequality in South Africa. Now um, we're going to pass on to Pfizer. Sure, yeah. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Faiza, and I'm from Cape Town, South Africa, one of the most, or not one of, the most unequal city in the world. And um, instead of giving you, I'm not an academic, I have no PowerPoint presentation for you. I will speak from my experience and I will tell my own story, which is not a unique story, it's the story of most working class women across uh, South Africa. 
So um, I'll start by, you know, when apartheid ended, we all were very happy. Our people were thinking freedom is here, etc., etc. However, none of that really mattered, you know. Um, during apartheid, uh, when, it, when it started, my grandfather was black and my grandmother was white, great-grandmother and great-grandfather. And so they were split up as families. She could stay the white could stay there and the, and the black one and so the family was already divided in that way. Um, my father, uh, they lived in an area called District 6 and they were all brutally evicted from there and lived, were, were placed very far from the city uh, on cheap land, uh, you know, close to no work, etc. And they all lived in this tiny home. Uh, I'll fast forward a little bit. They had children and um, uh, we all were born into this unfortunate family situation where there was no wealth involved at all. Um, I grew up in, in an area called Mitchell's Plain when my mother got a, a, a council house there. Uh, it's not something she owns, it's just you rent it from the council until forever. And um, eventually the house got too full and overcrowded and some of us had to leave and I got married and uh, my husband and I, uh, we lived in a backyard and um, in 2011, we found ourselves homeless because we were both unemployed, we had nowhere to go. And after days and nights of you know, roaming the streets, not knowing where to sleep, where to go with the kids, somebody might say sleep here tonight and so on, um, we heard about this occupation happening, you know, but it wasn't presented to us as an occupation. We were told that it's legal, uh, you're going to get houses and plots and all of this. Um, but. Um, We've, we found out later on that it was a political ploy because it was right before the elections and it was the ANC bringing people out and, you know, in the understanding that we have rights without even involving us. And so people, some people paid for, you know, little bits of money towards the plot. And as soon as um, the anti-land invasion unit came, because when the land was there and, and people said we can go, we were of course very happy because uh, not knowing where you're going to live or sleep with your children is very hard and this was this made me so happy we immediately took the little bit that we had and we went to this field and we put up our structure and we we're very happy and on the second day we woke up with the anti-land invasion unit that the city is paying millions for every year to to evict people from land occupations um, and law enforcement and the police it looked like the army outside and they just evicted people. They destroyed everything we had, even though it was very little. Um, most of the people that was there managed to go back to where they were. Of course, people like me, we had nowhere to go, so we had to stay on the field. Um, about 30 families stayed behind. It was really people that had nowhere to go, like me, to begin with. Youth with no direction. Uh, some ill people with HIV AIDS and some family discriminations, and they ended up living with us on the field. Um, we lived there, we, uh, there was court cases, we, uh, they tried to evict us, they eventually did evict us, but we were allowed to live there for 18 months uh, on the field but not put up a structure. So you're allowed to live on the field but not put a, a, a roof over your head. And they would consider a trolley with a blanket a structure and they would remove it. So they deliberately would come when it's raining every single they, you know, come and remove our stuff with the hope that we disappear. And uh, I kept on saying to them, you know, if they say go home, and they're like, tell me where home is and then I'll go. I have no idea where home is. I have no home. And um, 
We stayed there for, for 18 months and then eventually got evicted. We ended up on the sidewalk just there because there wasn't anywhere else for us to go. The law enforcement came the next day, gave us a letter, said, if you're here tomorrow, you'll be jailed for five years. And so we moved from there onto the next piece of land and it happened to be railway property. Um, within an hour, there was an army of railway police, um, supported by our police, of course, and they wanted to evict us, but by then, um, for the 18 months that we were there, we were empowering ourselves, trying to find out what's happening, you know, what can we do, how in this democracy we are still living in such conditions. So, um, my first um, understanding of what's going on is when I was invited to a community activist course, ILRIG, which is the International Labour Research and Information Group, then NGO, and um, I walked into the room, it's my first visit, and I see on the walls capitalism, neoliberalism, privatization, and I'm like, what? I need a house. Capital means money. What are you talking about? And they, um, I honestly stayed for the coffee, and I stayed for the food, I stayed for, because there was nice hot water in the toilets, and we were all having a bath, and so on, and we kept on going back. Um, but we, we also went back, because what, what really captured me was the other activists in the room that had either been evicted or facing eviction or supporting people who were being evicted and I, we learned so much from them and of course we learned what capitalism means and neoliberalism and all of those things yeah um, after railway also evicted us people just split into different areas myself and my family we ended up in a in a informal setting uh, with majority closer speaking people and just to say that I don't like to be called a colored because apartheid government gave me that name. They said I'm a colored, I'm not a colored, I'm black. And so we, we moved into this informal settlement. I unfortunately couldn't stay there for very long. I was there for a year, but it was very stressful because I couldn't get my kids to school and it meant walking long distances with them in the morning and so on. And eventually we moved into um, a backyard which is closer to um, to the schools for the kids. Um, yeah, we managed to get them through school. We struggled so much. My daughter finished matric. Uh, we, we do piecework. I don't have uh, employment. My husband is not employed either. Um, we did an adult education course at UCT uh, a few years ago, and so that's what we do. We we do adult education around you know the specific pol politics that we are involved in, trying to raise awareness. And um, so we ended up living in this backyard, um, but then the house got sold out from under us. We didn't know. They just told us um, the house is sold and you have to move. And again, we were back to where are we going to go? How is my kids going to go to school? We already don't have food. We're struggling with electricity. And the worst thing we were struggling with was water. Um, not having water to cook, to clean, to wash your children, to do all the necessities. You know, you will die without water. And so, the two struggles that I was very involved in was housing, because of, you know, the fact that if you don't have a house, you don't have dignity. You know, if, if you have to, to roam the streets and not know where you go every single day, there's no dignity in that. Um, to not have water is a death, it's just a death trap. Um, and our city, uh, the city of Cape Town, uh, in 2014 at the time when I was living in the backyard, had um, 
started installing uh, Bluetop water management devices in the community. And this Bluetop water management devices only allows 350 liters of water to come out of the tap. Now, we know communities we live in uh, very overcrowded conditions, so I don't know if you know about backyarders. You know, people living put up putting structures up in your yard because they don't have anywhere else to go. If you go to Cape Town now, there's backyarders, frontyarders, sideyarders, sideyarders, there's up to five structures on one property. Now, imagine 350 liters of water coming to that property. It's, it's hopelessly too little. People cannot, couldn't survive with it. And there was no consultation, and so people kept on coming to us for support. They didn't know what to do, and they were specifically targeting the pensioners, the people who don't really understand. So our parents wasn't schooled, as you heard in the previous uh, presentation. Uh, they were only allowed to go up to, um, I think both my parents didn't finish even primary school. And so often the, the, the older people don't really know their rights, they don't know what, and they just sign uh, for these things, or they get it without even consultation or needing to sign, and they just accept it because they think, you know, it's the right thing to do. Um, this device, uh, it's a water management device, quickly earned the name Weapons of Mass Destruction amongst working class people, because the device was faulty, it would pop, and every time it pops, the water runs down the street, and all the water that runs down the street, until whenever they come to fix it, you have to pay for. Um, the device, when they install it, it costs 4,000 rand. You didn't want it, but it appears on your bill next month. And so, this was a, for me an important avenue to go down, to start supporting people and making sure that they understand what's happening. Um, so I've been very involved in that. The racial wealth divide is super clear in Cape Town. You come, if you can look from a satellite point, you'll, you'll see the line. The poor is on the one side and the rich is on the other side. Um, those of us who are on this side, we don't get services or very limited services. We are the ones that get the meters. Those ones that can afford, they don't get the meters. We don't have work. Most of the people in my community do precarious work. They do uh, scrap collecting, um, domestic work. They do maybe standing at the, at the street lights and, and selling fruit or vegetables. You know, whatever kind of work they can get. And um, when COVID hit, that was terrible because there was no warning. And we knew that people in our community were suffering. We knew that we had to get to them somehow because we knew who didn't have water, we knew who didn't have food. And the police would be on the streets regularly, swearing at the kids, go inside, chasing them, literally scaring people coming out of their homes. And. Um, but we knew that we had to do something. So we, we organized ourselves. We, some of the women who collect scrap had trolleys, and they would come around and collect some water and then go and deliver to whoever. And the police was, wasn't worried with them because they would argue with the police, just leave me alone, people need water, I have to go. And they would let them go. Um, so men couldn't do this because they would be beat. But the women could, the women would stand and say, no, I am taking this water to that woman because she needs it. And the same goes with food. And um, so COVID has made life even worse, even more difficult for working class people. We are not able to save anything because we are not employed. If you don't have anything, there's no way you can save, yeah? Um, we, we, we get disability grants, we get pensions, um, and then there's a new grant that the government is giving to poor households uh, or per person. 
It's 350 rand, which is so little. I, w I still say I would like to know how did they come up with that amount, you know. 350 rand doesn't even f feed my family for one day. So this is what we, we expected to, to live with. Um, we have uh, pensioners and disabled people giving their, their bank cards to, lo to loan sharks because they don't qualify for any other kind of loan. So you'll come at the bank at the end of the month and you'll see the loan shark standing in front with a stack of cards and people are fetching the change, yeah? So you owe a thousand rand, you'll get 20 rand change and they'll give it to you, but they'll hold on to your card. So our pensioners are deep in, in debt. Uh, young people are unemployed, don't know what to do, find themselves drug, drug, drugging um, or al drinking alcohol or, you know, just doing sex work, anything to survive. Um, yeah, our government doesn't care. They, um, we've in so many different ways tried to, to, to say to the government, you know, the amount of money that you're giving to people to survive doesn't work um, and that we need more jobs. But as you've heard previously, the, the unemployment rate just goes up and up and up. And the worst off is the youth because they've studied, they've done something and now they're sitting at home. My daughter finished matric and then we did everything we could to get her into a university or something. Unfortunately, we didn't. But we paid for causes, you know, we went every day, do little bits of work so that we can, you know, invest in our future so that she can do something. She works at Pick and Pay now. There is no other employment. She literally works for Travelling Fair. She goes to work and the, the, the distance from the work is so far, it takes an hour to get there. And so she gives out more money than she actually earns. And, but she doesn't want to leave the job because she's saying, what, what, what am I going to do if I stay home? I'd rather wait for another opportunity. Um, so yeah, the, the, the situation is very dire. Like I said, my story is not unique. My story is the story of other working class women across South Africa struggling with the same things. Services are not being provided and we are doing desperate things to survive. Thank you. Thank you, Faiza. That was very powerful and moving. Thank you. So we have about 20 minutes left. And I should have said at the beginning, this is a hybrid event, so we also have some people online. And if you are online, you can post a question in the chat if you haven't done so already. Um, but what we'll do, I think, is try and get questions to groups of two or three. So I'm going to invite anyone from the audience to, to ask a question. Uh, if, if you do ask a question, please be say who you are and, and just identify yourself. Yeah, OK, down the, the back there. Do you think racial maldistribution of wealth tends to intensify because of the fear of genetic annihilation of like population reduction based on a certain race of people? Okay, let's get a couple of more questions and then, um, yeah, one in front here. Thank you. Um, I, I wondered why there was such an income disparity between Indians, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis before we arrived in England around the same time and have the same skin colour. So what was driving the difference? Uh, if we can come, and also Black African and Black African. Thank you. Uh, one more question. Any, any more questions? Or? Um, for our South African panelists, I'm actually just very curious to hear proposed solutions, if possible, or what you think would help address 
some of the disparities with wealth distribution in South Africa, given the impact apartheid has had on it. Thank you. Should we go around the panel and give a new prize? Do you want to begin? Yeah, I, I can speak perhaps to the, the second question there. Migration histories and uh, the migration journeys are really important in terms of determining some of those um, outcomes that you described and that we've seen represented in those figures. So I think that um, I'm obviously from a Bangladeshi background. Um, my parents might have arrived in the 1960s alongside other Indian migrants, but their class profile was entirely different and they came for a, a very different purpose. Faiza, you said that your parents didn't um, kind of have an education beyond primary school, my parents too, and that's very different class, education, <coughs> labour market profile that they would have entered at, um, and which was different to kind of the Indian migrants that might have come at that time and also a, a little bit earlier. So I think that there is um, some, an earlier pattern of Indian migration as well um, that would have factored into that. So I think that, that this is where the race-class um, intersection is really important. We can see that represented in our political classes right now in terms of who, who is speaking on behalf of different minority ethnic groups and that actually even though there might be some uh, kind of racial proximity or racialized proximity to to those communities, actually the class profile is very, very different and I think it's important to kind of make sure that we recognise how the, the, the interaction between race and class and how migration journeys, again, the Black Caribbean versus the Black um, African experience, the, the, the timelines of that are kind of markedly different um, for making up the, the kind of profiles that have played out in terms of the inequalities that we see as well. So I think it's really important, that's why kind of disaggregation is so important and understanding that race and class can operate very interactively through through different communities. And also as Pfizer mentioned as well, gender, you know, the gender intersection there as well. So um, I think that all of those things contribute. Thank you. Um, yes, I, I, I could add here the, the fact that uh, uh, the housing uh, distribution of different ethnic groups in different uh, regions of the country and I mean it has to do the much to do with the fact that uh, some ethnic groups arrived in different time periods as well difference in the housing systems that uh, they had to face so this is another factor of contributing to the inequality but yes on the Indian uh, ethnic group I mean the the issue is that many of the Indian uh, of people of uh, Indian ethnic origin, they had some support in late uh, 70s uh, from their homeland, to, from their family, to, to buy houses here. So this has contributed. So yes, it is uh, some, a story of uh, some inequalities back home also brought into the UK as well, so it's not... Uh... Thanks. I think there's only one question for me. Yeah. Um, it's a hard problem, right? You've got, a, you've got a scenario which has evolved over more than a century. And so I think that there is an important thing to recognize, even in the most, in the best case scenario, we would still be dealing with some of this legacy. You can't do it. It's a generational problem, which was quiet. But that being said, we do waste a lot of money and we lose a lot of money f through corruption, crime, inefficiency. And I think that's an important margin because, because it kind of r reduces the whole sense of energy and motivation and will. And, and so I think, I mean, right now, I think South Africans are quite 
demotivated and de depressed almost. Yeah. So, so like having that first and foremost would be your starting point, in my opinion. Yeah, I think um, we are the solution. Yeah, um, we have to be the change we want to see. Uh, we did it in 1994. Uh, we overthrew apartheid, and we have to believe that we can do it now. Um, we are vigorously organizing on the ground, working with communities, self-organized communities, um, and we we have to grow bigger, you know, as an organization, and we have to get involved with so many other organizations um, so that we can, our voices can be heard. Uh, and in fact, we have to take back uh, what is ours, but um, it depends on us, you know, and, and mostly working class women, because if you go uh, in, in South Africa and you, uh, you look at who is organizing and who is at the front line, it's women. Women are the ones who feel the pain when there's no services being provided, etc. Uh, but they're also the ones that are willing to get up and fight and say no more. So, um, yeah, I have, I have to believe that we are the change. You know, we have, we have the solution within us. We just have to, to get there. Thank you. Should we have some more questions uh, online? Two questions online. Yeah, first question is um, how wealthy were uh, black South Africans um, before colonization or before apartheid? Um, the second question, um, do you think you can learn from Zimbabwe uh, in terms of nationalizing assets, expropriating white-owned property and businesses? Yeah, so, I mean, let's go back to the definition. In a, in a society where you're not trading land, then the whole country had very little wealth, right? I mean, that's just a definitional approach. Um, it's hard to know what wealth levels would have been like when, when you've got ownership which isn't titled. That is the point. So, I mean, if you're thinking of the 1800s, I don't know how you would even try to answer that question, but the person asking can try. Um, it's, an, it's an untradable good at that point. So, like, how, I don't know how else to think about this, but what was the second question? Oh, so the, the, the issue is about expropriation. I mean, I don't know how exactly they, look, I think there's, we have a much more sensible, or at least stable way, rather, of taxation. And that's how we can systemically and stably do redistribution. So you can, we do pay land taxes, we pay property taxes, we pay um, income taxes, and the fiscus allocates the budget. So I'm sorry, I'm looking at you, but it's someone online. Um, yeah. there's. And tax rates can be changed, and they can be raised substantially if it's politically desirable. I think that's something which South Africa hasn't thought about that much. There are efficiency risks, so you know, at very, very high levels of taxation, maybe you do start to distort the economy in ways that matter. But, but every so a couple of years ago when we had mass protests, an unstable society also has costs. Um, and you can't get away from that, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, we've got 
five minutes left. Any any more questions? There's one. Yeah, we've got over here. Thank you, uh, Professor Humal. I just want to find out, over and above what Pfizer said about protests and maybe people revolting, uh, what do you think can be done? Uh, because some of the some of these complexities are more systemic, and you know internalized in terms of you know who has power and control. Okay. Yes, one in the middle here. Um, I was wondering how land ownership works in townships in South Africa. How it's organised? Big question there. I'm on, on to the back there. Yes, it's the question of wide, widening inequalities in terms of global. There seems to be a, some kind of coordinated element in terms of economies, east, west, north, and south. Does the panel believe that, despite mentioned, the mention of higher taxation and economic management and the question of higher public investment. Is there any other way out of this moral dilemma? Okay. Okay. Um, would any of you like to pick up any of those questions? The townships, perhaps, that might be a good one to start. I'll respond to the question of land ownership. How does it work? So, um, in the townships, people might be living in homes. Um, you would have heard about the amazing uh, millions of RDP houses that the ANC has built since apartheid. Um, but what you won't, what you don't know is that yes, these houses are so tiny, badly built, poor, with poor labor, people that don't have skills, uh, cheap material, and on the outskirts of the city, people can't even fit their furniture into this house. Coming from a shack, the one bedroom, the main bedroom, can only fit a double bed. Can you imagine how big that, how small that is? Um, so, uh, and they don't own it, you, you, you rent it from, from the government until a certain point where you can buy it. So in my area where I lived, um, they, uh, we had the old people who'd been living in these homes for over 30 years, and the government came and they said, oh now, there's opportunity of a lifetime, you can own your house. Um, so they've been paying this house for 30 years, but this opportunity of a lifetime comes around. But it comes with uh, um, conditions, and one of the conditions are that you accept uh, electricity meter and you accept a water management device and a lot of people fell for that and then they paid very little and now they own the house so the question of ownership is also very confusing because they own these homes but they can't afford to own it because the minute you sign and you own it the government takes no more responsibility for whatever happens to your home and so therefore we have old people who are living in homes with no electricity with no water because the house is falling apart and government has washed their hands and said you are now the owner i am not responsible so whether ownership is is a good thing uh, in south africa i'm not sure um what can be done you know uh, we have uh, sa breweries the beer makers uh, who position themselves on a, on a springs, a water springs, and they've been getting water for free for over 100 years, while the people who live across the road is being restricted, you know? Our government needs to take into, seriously take, and I, and I don't think they don't know this, I don't think they are not aware of what's going on, I think they're very well aware, but they are 
they are more uh, attracted by the profit that can be made from the services. They have no issue saying that, you know, water and electricity is their main income of revenue. So, um, and that is what they, what they take from us. So if you buy um, your own electricity or water, as an example, let's say you have a bill and you can't afford to pay it. If you go and buy electricity, it gets deducted from there. So you go buy 100 rand electricity, you only get 30 rand. 70% of what you are giving in terms of money gets deducted because you can't pay your water and it goes there automatically. We have so many uh, reasons um, and, and just obvious reasons why uh, things must change. Uh, like the, your breweries, like the, the Nestle's, the, the big companies that are there, agriculture, you know, big agriculture. 13% uh, of, uh, of the population uses 51% of the water, and the rest is spread amongst the poor. And so this is not news. They know this. They know the stats better than we do. Um, our government needs to tax the rich. Uh, for services for the poor, but they won't do that because they're rich, they're, they have them in their pockets. The rich decides on our services and how it gets delivered. They have a say in, but we don't have a say. So, yeah. Thank you. It's 8 o'clock, so I think, why don't we go around the panel for one last time to answer any of those questions or any points you want to finish off with? So we'll perhaps we'll go in this order. Dimo, do you want to make any final comments? Or um, yeah, just a final comment. It's. I mean, the point is, it's hard. I don't have any clean answers. I don't. I won't trust anyone who says this is how you do it either. It's just, it's complex. It's deep rooted, and in all likelihood, it will kind of, eventually, hopefully, sooner rather than later, unravel in a, in a kind of chaotic way. Is the point? No one can predict exactly this is the sequence of events that will get us to a better space. The second thing is, I don't think it's useful, in fact, to think in a binary, like we have poverty and we don't have poverty, we have inequality, we don't have. We, we're gonna have, right? It's gonna be there. It's about magnitudes and what's realistically achievable within time frames. I think that's far more pragmatic, and then that can be, lead to goal setting which can be attained. Um, just saying, we have racial inequality, yes, we do, and will we have it for a long time? Yes, we will. Eleni? Yes, I think that's a, a captures of the, the, the story, unfortunately, both globally uh, and South Africa, but also in the UK. I mean, it will take uh, time to close up uh, completely all the gaps. I mean, it's uh, historic inequalities um, uh, that uh, are difficult to be eliminated uh, with just one or two policies. <laughs> I'll be really quick. Just to say yes. I accept it's totally co it's it's complex. It's not going to be solved overnight. But Pfizer, your story and uh, and what you shared with us gives me so much hope. Um, a because there's so much symmetry between what you said about your experiences, but actually communities right here in London actually, um, and there are communities doing very similar work to the work that you've described, coming together, organising, and um, building the power within themselves to kind of resist some of the the. the the impositions that you described. So it's complex, it's going to take a long time, but there is hope, um, is what I'd say. Absolutely. Yes, great note almost to finish. Can I thank the panel and thank you for coming? Thank you for listening. 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.